Father, we thank you for a Wednesday night in your word. Father, take the words that are spoken here tonight, magnify them to your glory. Uh, Take the weaknesses, Father, that are evident in your servant and turn them to your strength. Father, I pray you take the hearts and minds that are in this room and open them to truth that perhaps, Father, is news to them, things they may not have heard. Father, things that were stored here waiting for this very day that they might be revealed and uh, give us a heart, Father, to receive them. And, Father, take the message as it uh, goes forth out of this room and uh, use it, Father, to sow seeds so that your kingdom may grow as a result. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right. Let's uh, go back into where we left off. Today we start chapter 16 of Luke. And the centerpiece of this chapter, there's really two centerpieces in this chapter. And I want to help you understand why this chapter exists in Luke's narrative and what Luke accomplishes in this chapter and how it fits into the preceding chapter as well as the one that follows. So a few minutes of that will be helpful and then we'll get into what this chapter itself contains. And I said there's two centerpieces to it. Those centerpieces are really one, a parable, and the other is something more than a parable, and I'll, refer, I'll explain that better when we get there in, a, in probably another week. And connecting these two elements, these two centerpieces, these two stories that make up the chapter 16 of Luke, are some of the Bible's most profound lessons, I would argue, uh, on the nature of wealth and on our approach to earthly riches. A very timely topic, I hope, certainly one that... Uh, we could always use additional biblical insight on, I would, I would expect. And as I said, before we get into those stories, before we get into the text itself, I think it's going to be very important to place this story in the larger arc of Luke's Gospel. It's so easy to study Scripture as snippets or as isolated stories or as a series of verses that seem to stand alone. There is value in doing that, no doubt, but that doesn't suffice if our true effort, if our true desire is to study God's Word as it was provided in its whole context from verse to verse, from beginning to end. So we want to make sure we keep that perspective. So where have we been? Well, first Luke brought us through the last series of chapters here through an important discussion. At the midpoint of his gospel, chapter 12, you remember he took note of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, uh, both through their word and through their deed, and then he detailed how Jesus responded to that rejection. And ultimately... Jesus responded by withdrawing the offer of the kingdom. So that's where we were at chapter 12, about the midpoint of the gospel. Then in uh, chapters 14 and 15, following Christ's confirmation of their rejection, Luke took some time to expose the hypocrisy and the false motives of the Pharisees. So his focus now moved away from the general nation of Israel to more specifically the Pharisees, the leadership, and explaining why they rejected Jesus and then explaining better why Jesus turned his back on them. You got a chance to see the motives of these men, their desires to exalt themselves rather than to exalt God, their desires to win the praises of men rather than to win the praises of God. So those motives, those underlying desires helped explain why the Pharisees acted the way they did. And Jesus used, or Luke rather, used chapters 14 and 15 to really show you that. Ultimately, those lessons uh, came to a climax at the end of chapter 15 last week which we finished last week, when you see the parable of the two sons. So that parable became essentially the crowning moment where you get to see the Pharisees' unrighteousness and all its ugliness. An unrighteousness, by the way, that they weren't willing to acknowledge, that they weren't willing to repent of. So in that parable, you get a full picture of who these men are. And by the way, that story, as we said last week, is really a story of two unrighteous sons. You just got a chance to see the distinction between those who would understand their unrighteousness and repent and therefore be celebrated by God 
versus those who wouldn't. So now in 16, Luke moves this narrative along fairly smoothly, I would argue, because he goes to a new issue, but it's one closely related to the previous. And this new issue is, what is the proper attitude toward earthly wealth? Now, you may ask yourself, that doesn't sound very smooth. How did this topic come to the foreground in Luke's gospel, given what we've just covered? Well, it includes not just what the biblical view of earthly wealth is, but maybe more specifically what God's view of the importance of earthly wealth is. For example, why does God give men wealth? Knowing that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, all the wealth of this world is his ultimately, why does he distribute it the way he does among men to allow some to have more than others? And both the stories in this chapter of Luke Uh, as we study them today, are both unique to Luke's gospel. As we've seen already in several of the preceding chapters, none of the other gospel writers capture the two stories that we look at here in chapter 16 of Luke. So this is a fairly extended piece within the gospel of unique material provided by Luke, which again argues that he's trying to build to something here. He's trying to give us insight here that maybe the other gospel writers never seized on. There's real insight he's building here. So how is wealth connected to what we've done already? How is Luke pushing all this together? Well, looking ahead for just a moment to chapter 17, what we're going to find Luke do is is record how Jesus teaches on the importance of a sincerity in faith. We'll see that when we get there. And that sincerity evidenced by our actions. So, in chapter 17, Luke will show how Jesus makes sincerity in faith a key issue for all men, and that sincerity must be represented in action. And that stands as a really nice contrast to what we've been studying about the Pharisees. Wouldn't you agree? That these Pharisees had been hypocritical. What they displayed was very different from what they actually believed. The, the, the prodigal son parable being a perfect example of that. The son that looked to be righteous and faithful to the father, loyal to the family, but in truth his heart was no closer than the prodigal son. He just was hypocritical by how he lived his life. So it's almost as though Luke writes chapter 15 to show how Jesus taught the disciples who the Pharisees really were. They were men who do not love or worship the Father, though they like to be seen as loyal. They want to be seen as dutiful sons, though they really aren't. And then he offers chapter 16 to explain what the Pharisees did worship. I mean, if after all, if they're not following God, if these men are hypocritical in their approach to God, they like to look like they're following Him, but deep down inside they're not. Well, then chapter 16 is going to explain to us who they do follow, what they really do yearn for, what they really do worship. And then chapter 17 is going to finish this progression by saying it's important that we are sincere in our faith and that our actions reflect that sincerity. I expose them for who they are, I reveal to them what their real motivations are, and then I conclude in chapter 17 with an analysis or with an application that says, therefore, you need to be sincere and your actions need to reflect that. So that's where we are. We're in the middle of that. We're looking now at chapter 16, which is the chapter that I think Luke uses to help expose how the Pharisees are motivated. What is driving them? And what did they worship? Well, in a word, money. Just that simple, in a word, money. And maybe you could extend it to power or influence, but its form in that world, like it is in our world for that matter, was money. Think about it. Real power in this world cannot exist apart from wealth. Name me a source of real power in this world, and I'll tell you that person has wealth at their disposal somewhere. Political power? Try getting elected without money. Business power? Try being powerful without the ability to command large amounts of capital. 
uh, religious power. Try having a strong voice in the church without a lot of money. It's very difficult. All of those things are God's ultimate control, granted, but I want to point out the fact that money is a tool both for righteousness and for unrighteousness, and you cannot find real power in this world without some money associated with it eventually. Even if it is uh, takes the form of a dollar per person, but millions of people organized by the Holy Spirit to do his work. My point is that money ultimately is a tool God can use. But Jesus and Luke, as the writer here, wants to illustrate how money is the ultimate word, uh, God of the Pharisees, and it's what they truly worship. But not to get too far ahead of myself, let's go into chapter 16, verse 1, and see how Luke now builds this point about money and the Pharisees' love of it. 16.1, now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. The manager said to him, or sorry, the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I will do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, I read three verses past the parable, but we'll get to all of them in, in due course. Let's start to consider what's being taught here. Thomas Constable, who teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary, has written that this is probably the most difficult parable in all of Scripture to interpret. And... At first reading, it's not hard to see why. Because there's some immediate contradictions or conundrums present in the, in the Scripture. There's these paradoxical messages that seem to be coming out at us. Uh, internal contradictions within the parable at first. And it leaves us wondering, what is Jesus' point? What's he asking us to do? I would also suggest it's difficult for us to interpret this parable because it's a sign of just how far off the biblical message of this parable, how far away from that biblical message our culture currently is. Our inability to understand this parable may in part be a result of the fact that we live in a culture which cannot understand the thinking that's behind this parable. At least it's very difficult. So if we're going to understand it, we've got to break it down, we've got to look at some detail. Certainly we have to get some historical context and then we're going to look at how Jesus applies it. So let's look first at those internal contradictions. You know, the master, we're told here, is ready to fire his manager because of mismanagement. But then later, in the same parable, we find the master praising the manager for being shrewd. And, and really being shrewd for what it appears to be a scheme designed to cheat the master out of even more money. It seems very odd, doesn't it, that he would be ready to fire him, then praise him, and yet what he praises him for seems to be more mismanagement. That seems totally contradictory. 
Then you look at the manager. You know, this manager, he looks like a pretty detestable character. He looks like somebody you can't trust as far as you can throw him. He embezzles from his boss, it seems, at every opportunity. And then at the end of the parable, Jesus seems to praise the guy, to praise his behavior. So now we're even more confused because we thought he was the bad guy. It leaves us in a, in a state where we're not even sure what to make of the answer of the parable itself. And then there's this reference in the parable to the wealth of unrighteousness. What's that? I mean, is this something we want, we don't want? Is it a problem? Well, let's sort it out. And as I said, as usually is the case in a parable like this, you have to have a little background on the times and the day that this story was told if you're really going to understand it. So let's start with a little lesson on the Jewish culture in that day when it came to business. In Jewish culture in that day, a wealthy businessman would often employ managers to handle their business affairs. And that's really very common today as well. That's not anything hard to understand. And in Jesus' day, the managers would uh, essentially attend to every detail of their master's business, including purchasing and selling goods from the master and extending credit to customers. So the master had a business of some kind of, of, of manner that involved retail and it involved selling things, selling goods. This manager had the accounts payable, the accounts receivable. He had the, uh, the lending and credit part of the business. He had all of that in his disposal. He was also the collections department. So this manager managed all aspects of this businessman's business. But under Jewish law, as the Jewish law provided in Deuteronomy 23.19, it was not legal for a Jew to charge another Jew usury interest. Usury interest is simply the interest you charge on someone who is using your money, what we would call the loan APR. So if you take a purchase on credit from a retailer here today, they may give you, you know, 90 days, no interest. That's 90 days, no usury is what that really means. Uh, if, you pay, if, you take, if you buy something on a year or two credit where you are paying uh, an interest fee, that's usury interest. You're paying fee to somebody on top of the cost of the item, an extra fee that we call interest. That's uh, essentially money paid for the privilege of borrowing somebody else's money. In Jewish law, it was illegal to do that. In, Jew in Deuteronomy 23:19, you couldn't do that. But the Jews looked for a way around that because no one in their right mind wanted to lend money without some opportunity to earn interest on their money. So it became a custom in Jewish society for a manager, such as this one, to overcharge the customer for the product or service by adding a fee to the standard cost of the product and they would add that fee directly to the bill for the goods or services. And when that bill was repaid to include that extra charge, the manager would take that extra money as his payment. So his share of the bill was the extra amount that he added on to the original bill. We would think of that extra amount truly as a kind of interest payment, but it wasn't called that in the day. It was thought of as the manager's fee. And the manager had tremendous discretion on how much he was willing to charge very much like you might see today in an unregulated business, he would charge whatever the market would bear. And it was not uncommon for a manager in some cases to charge a 100% markup on top of the bill that the master was owed. Again, that's not unusual today. Quite often a markup in a retail setting for furniture or for jewelry can be 2 or 300% or 400% over what the store itself paid for the original item. The point here is that you have a fee that the client owes the master, for whatever he bought, and that fee includes two parts. The part that the master himself is owed, and a second part on top that is the money owed to the manager for his services in the, in the business dealing. 
Now, the second thing to understand as you look at this parable is what comparison Christ is actually making in verse 8. In verse 8, we read that sons of this age are more shrewd in relationship in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. He makes a comparison here between the sons of this age, which is a way of saying unbelievers, and the sons of light, which is clearly a reference to the church or the believers in general. We'll call it the church for the sake of today's discussion. But he uses a very important phrase to connect the two. If you look at verse 8, he uses the term in relation to their own kind. In relation to their own kind. In other words, Jesus is not making a comparison here between how believers deal with unbelievers or vice versa, how unbelievers deal with believers. That's not the comparison in view. He's making a comparison between how unbelievers deal with unbelievers compared to how believers deal with believers. So he's saying, look at how unbelievers deal with each other. They're more shrewd dealing with each other than the sons of light are dealing with their kind, with each other. That's an interesting comment, isn't it? That somehow the way we as believers treat each other in this area of wealth, in this area of money, is less shrewd than the way unbelievers are willing to deal with each other in the area of money. Now, he didn't use the word righteous. He didn't say they're more righteous than us. He said they're more shrewd. They, that's a term that suggests they're doing something that is more inventive, more creative, more, uh, more effective. It's doing something with greater acumen than we're able to do within our own world in the area of money. It's an interesting comparison, isn't it? gets us thinking a little bit about what it is that we should learn from the way unbelievers deal with one another. Well, that's the point of the parable, and we're going to get there. So the second point here is that the church has something to learn in how we deal with one another in the area of money. And we can learn that by looking at what unbelievers are doing with each other in their own wealth, with their wealth. So now let's look at the actual parable and the details of this parable. And in it we find a manager, we're told, who's not been reliable in his position of authority. And the master tells him he's going to be fired. This is an interesting detail. It's a very interesting detail. He's not fired yet. He still has the full authority of the master. This is a man who's been put on notice... But because he's been put on notice and yet not fired, he finds himself in a very interesting situation. He is still capable of doing all that he used to do. The master's not withdrawn any authority. He's not locked, taken his keys away. He's not said, stop coming to the office. He said, I want to fire you, but before I fire you, I want you to give me an account of what you've done. It's, it's essentially saying to somebody, before I let you go, you need to come help me understand what you've been doing so that when you're gone, I'll be able to pick it up in your absence. Very interesting kind of conversation, isn't it? So before releasing him, the manager says, I want you to give an accounting of your management. I want to look over how the books look, maybe just see how bad things are. What that does for the manager, however, is it gives him a little window of opportunity. The manager now sees that he has a chance to help himself. He knows that his firing is imminent. He's about to leave his comfortable world, this world he's grown accustomed to, and the, the world that he's dependent on, and he's going to have to move into a new world. And this is an, an unknown thing. I, I want you to understand that the emphasis here is on the fact that he's about to transition into a new world that he's not comfortable in, not necessarily familiar with. He doesn't know what he's going to find on the other side. And in this context, we're talking about how is he going to earn his living? Who's going to want to take him in? Now, I want you to keep, consider for a minute the kind of man this man would have been. As a manager of a businessman, he had a tough job. He had to be a tough negotiator. He had to be a tough collector. He had to be a fairly unforgiving creditor to those who were not willing to pay back their debt. He had a certain responsibility in his job that meant he probably didn't have a lot of friends. 
He probably didn't have a lot of people in his community that were all that sympathetic to his plight because of the way he probably had to deal deal business-wise with them in the past. So he's got a problem. He's worried about what he's going to find where he's going, and he's got a very limited opportunity to make the best of what time remains. So he devises a shrewd scheme, and Jesus calls it shrewd. He identifies, or he tells us up front that this man does something very creative and very useful to himself, and it's something we should learn from. He realizes that all the debts that are currently outstanding, all the accounts receivable that are currently outstanding to his master, include a portion that belongs to him. So if you were to look at the balance sheet or if you were to look at the accounts receivable ledger for this company, there's a certain amount of outstanding payments yet to be made to the master for goods and services. And in each one of those payments, some portion of those payments represents his fee. A fee that if he is fired he would never see anyway. So it's money that's in jeopardy, money really that he has no expectation of ever receiving. So though it's his, it's not his. Though he has control over it for a limited opportunity, in reality, he'll never see it. He has no way to ever collect on it. It's as good as gone, though for a time, he has an opportunity to influence what it can do for him. So even though he's going to lose the money, why not use this window of opportunity to do something for himself to get some bang out of that buck, to get some gain for himself out of the money that's still sitting in that accounts receivable ledger. So what he does is he runs to each of these debtors and he says to them, while he still has the authority to do this, he's not violating the master's authority whatsoever. He still has the authority to do what he's about to do. He asks them to reduce their debt by the amount of his fee. Now, we know that that's what he's doing because of the way the master himself comes back later and praises the man for his inventiveness. You could hardly have expected the master to have praised this manager if what he had been doing was reducing the amount that the master himself was going to collect. It's self-evidently the case that all he did was reduce the amount that he himself was due to collect, that the manager was due to collect. Now, since the manager's fee is still going to be on the bill and ultimately paid, the master has not lost a cent of what he was due. Meanwhile, what the manager has gained in this, trans- in this transaction is he has gained the goodwill of these clients who understand implicitly what's happened. That the manager has come back and discounted what they owe by his own fee and in doing so, reduced what they have to pay. And they see him as gracious for having done so. So it's a win-win-win situation. The manager is gaining the favor of these clients who will then be more disposed, more likely to help him when he's in a time of need to come. Number two, the clients themselves certainly are saving money, which is why they would find some interest in helping him later. And then lastly, the master's business, you could argue, is going to benefit from the positive reaction, from the goodwill that this move is going to generate for that company, for that, for that master. Because obviously they're going to credit the businessmen for their good, for their good fortune in this deal, as well as the manager himself. So it's evident now, as we understand the details of this circumstance, that Jesus isn't praising the poor management of this manager. He isn't praising the manager for having been in trouble. He isn't praising the manager for all that he did to get to the point of being fired. He's focusing in on this one little moment in time where the manager is in jeopardy and he does something very shrewd and very creative to help himself out of a jam. But here's where the parable can get a little confusing because Jesus says the sons of light can learn something from how this manager responded to this situation. What is it we would learn? Jesus says that unbelievers are more shrewd with one another than Christians are with one another. 
The problem I think we have with this parable is that we don't understand the difference between the wealth of unrighteousness and the wealth of righteousness. In other words, in, other, in order to understand how Jesus is praising this man and why he's saying we should mimic him or how we should mimic him, you have to understand what he means by unrighteous wealth or the wealth of unrighteousness. You may have assumed that the wealth of unrighteousness is money gained through dishonest means, uh, the, the, the gambling winnings of somebody or the embezzlement money somebody collects. In other words, unrighteous wealth is any wealth gained through some kind of dishonest means. That's not what he means at all. That has nothing to do with what he's talking about. It is the money of this world. All physical money, all money of earth is unrighteous wealth. Why is it unrighteous? Because it's the money of this world. It's the money this world wants. It's the money that the flesh desires. It's not spiritual wealth. It's not eternal wealth. It's not the wealth we will have in eternity, which is the only kind that matters because this all burns up. Unrighteous wealth is any wealth that drives us away from what we should care about, which is eternal reward. Now, we self-evidently have unrighteous wealth. Our bank accounts are filled with it. Our pockets have it. Our houses are made of it. So it's not in and of itself a bad thing to have. The fact that Christ calls it unrighteous wealth doesn't suggest we should divest ourselves of the world's wealth, necessarily. What he's asking us to do, though, is put it in its proper perspective in our heart. It is not what we invest our interest and love in. It is merely a tool. And in the same way that this righteous, or this manager rather, understood how a money can be a tool to a greater end, and it is not the end in itself, he is telling us that we likewise should be shrewd in that way. Now let's put all this together and understand why Jesus is saying we ought to mimic it. We've got to learn how to use unrighteous wealth. We have to understand how it can be used to influence people and to accomplish things that have lasting value because we're just like that unrighteous manager. We live in a time when we know the end is drawing near. Whether that end comes as a function of the rapture, whether that end comes because of our own physical death, we've effectively been put on notice. We're leaving this world. You've been fired, in a sense, from this world. You're just waiting for the axe to fall. The days are numbered. Could be next year, could be next decade, could be tomorrow. Your job is coming to an end, the job God has given you in this world. You're getting ready to transition into a new world, a one that you're not real familiar with yet, the one we've not seen yet, the one that's going to have people waiting for us there that we don't know very well, perhaps, or we've never met, or maybe they're people we'll know very well. Whoever they are, they precede us and they wait for us. And you have a window, and you have unrighteous wealth at your disposal, money you can't take with you, just like the unrighteous manager could not take it with him, but money that yet could still be put to some use while you've got it, to earn for yourself something greater in the next world, something that will welcome you there, something that will ultimately be permanent. So Christ is saying in this world, you have the unbelievers who invest in the unrighteous wealth of this world. They deal with each other shrewdly. How? Because they know this is all they have. They're not looking beyond this world. Unbelievers have no hope of another life. Most of them don't believe there is one. Or if they believe it, they only have some silly general notion of it, and it certainly doesn't drive their behavior in this life, does it? So what do they do in the meantime? They use the wealth of this world amongst themselves to gain as much advantage in this world as they can. They're very shrewd at that because they are working with the only wealth they'll ever have, and they treat it seriously as they should because after this world there's nothing left. How then should a believer be shrewd in like manner? 
what would be an equivalent for us? Well, it's certainly not to mimic their behavior. What Jesus is not saying is we should then become like them such that we put all our interest in this world's, worth, uh, this world's wealth. What he's saying, on the other hand, is just like they know how to use what they have to their advantage, we have something greater. We have a greater inheritance, a greater hope, a greater country to whom we are citizens. We should be using what we can in this life to gain something in that world because that's where we want to invest. That's where we want to put our future. But if we live today as if we were sons of this world, people who had no future, who had nothing to look beyond in this world, as if the money that we have now is our treasure and all that we care about, if that's how we live, we're doing the opposite of what Jesus is calling us to do. We, and I think what he says is the church generally doesn't live like that. Think about your own experience and those you know. The church today does not view the money that's in the pockets of those who make up the church as merely a tool that's passing along, never to go with us, not something we'll ever retain in any meaningful way. And as long as it's in our control, how are we putting it to use so that in the next world we will spend eternity in, it will have done good for us there? What would that actually look like? What would it look like for us to be shrewd in that way? You know, to view the money that sits in our bank accounts even now as merely money on a ledger that we'll never actually collect. Money that will actually never be ours in a meaningful sense, but yet is for a time at our disposal for that kind of use. What would it look like? You know, I think it would be very easy to jump to the conclusion that it means we would spend every last time we had tomorrow on something uh, you know, religious, some ministry, and then feel good that we've done that. That's not shrewdness. That's certainly not good stewardship. It's, it's uh, really a shortcut to doing the hard work. The hard work is being obedient to God on a daily basis and how we spend our money, where we put our prior priorities, how we understand the purpose that God has given us that wealth for. Because that's actually the underlying concern. Why did he give you wealth? That would be the question to start with, and the answer to that question should drive your use of that wealth. There are many who saved their money their whole life so that at the end of their life, as they died, that money became an inheritance to some ministry or to some great work. And in that, they've done what God called them to do, a life of miserly living and saving for some greater purpose God had in mind. And then there are others who spend it as it comes into their hand. Then there are others who magnify it in business and in some other manner of, of wealth uh, accumulation so that they can then become a source of wealth to others in ministry. There's a hundred thousand ways to do it. The one way not to do it, of course, is to spend it so that you are investing in this world thinking you are building something to yourself that obviously is going to eventually perish. Look at what Jesus says in the parable. In verse 9, he says, Make friends with your earthly money. So how are we saying we're making friends with the way we would spend the money of this world? Remember the unrighteous manager. In the way he used money that was not truly his, he gained friends where he was going. How do you gain friends where you're going by spending money that's not actually yours? Well, we know that Jesus said he went to prepare a home for us, a house, a room for us in his father's house. There are many rooms there. We know that we ultimately do dwell with God in the eternal age. We know that there is, in fact, going to be others there with us. Could it be that what he's suggesting is in the way we spend our money, God may magnify that obedience to the effect of bringing others to faith? So for those who would take that money that they know they can't take with them anyway, so why not spend it to get the word out or spend it in some other way to support the ministries that God puts in my life? And as a result, others are blessed through that work. I tend to believe that what Jesus is saying very literally here is that in, in the next age we will encounter people who will be able to credit our faithfulness and obedience with something God did in their life. And that we will find friends in that sense. 
because of the obedience we have here today with that wealth. And I believe that's what his point is to the disciples. You may have wealth. You may have opportunity to spend wealth. Just don't let the wealth itself be the focus. Understand it's a tool of ministry. Understand how I want you to use it for the sake of the work I have for you here on earth. Look at what he says at the end of the parable. If you don't fully understand what I'm saying or if it's not quite ringing true, look how he ends the parable, the verses I read at the end. He said at the end, essentially, if you aren't willing to spend the wealth that you've been given now, that you've been entrusted with now, for God's glory or for the benefit of the kingdom, if you rather just spend it on yourself, squander it, in other words, like the prodigal son, he says, essentially, you better enjoy it while you got it because that's about the only wealth you're ever going to get. It's a principle that we apply in our everyday lives. Who do you promote in your job at your workplace? Who do you give more responsibility to in your workplace? Isn't it those who've demonstrated faithfulness with the limited amount of responsibility they started with? Do you promote the lazy guy? Do you pr- hope not. Do you promote the, the person who's embezzled money from you? Hope not. Who do, you imp- who do you promote? He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, we're told. What he's entrusted you with here in his eyes is a very little thing. You could have a lot of money in your bank account. You could have a little money in your bank account. It's a very little thing to God. What you think you've amassed that you believe is so valuable is a very little thing to God. And yet we're asked to be faithful with it, to use it in appropriate ways, which means essentially doing what he asks us to do with it. But if we're unrighteous in such a very little thing, then he says there is a principle here, a biblical rule, that says you could be guaranteed to be unrighteous with a lot. And I want, you to put it, I want to put it in different terms for you. If you are unrighteous in the use of worthless monopoly money, for example, if I gave each of you $10,000 in monopoly money and I asked you to go use it in righteous ways as God directs you, would you care very much how it got used? Would you, put any, would you care very much where it went? Wouldn't it just be a game to you? Wouldn't it all just be for fun? Would you have any personal interest in what happened to that? No, you'd see it as worthless and you'd play with it and you'd have a good time and you'd probably just give it to the people you thought it should be given to because you have no personal vested interest in it. You're not attached to it because it has no value to you. If I put 10,000 real dollars in front of you and I asked you to do the same thing, would you do that? What he's saying is if you're not willing to do it with very little, then it's self-evidently the case you won't do it with something that's very meaningful. So if it were the case that you didn't use the monopoly money properly, I'd be a fool to give you 10,000 real dollars. That's the thought that's behind this parable. Secondly, he says, if you aren't faithful in using something that's not your own, then why would I give you something that is yours? Now, consider that for a moment. What is it we have now that's not our own? Again, the world's wealth. You see the difference of the thinking here? If you're thinking the money that you have is your own, then you miss the point. God says it's not your money. It's the world's money. And the day you die, you'll see that for yourself. Start thinking like that. It's not your money. It's the world's money. It's paper money. It's it's monopoly money. It came into your hands. It could go out the next day. When you die, you'll you'll see the real stuff. And that'll be yours. But if you're expecting God to reward you richly when you get there, he's going to say, I'm going to use as one of my measures for whether you're worth that kind of investment what you did with the fake stuff that wasn't yours while you had it. Remember the words of Christ in Matthew 13:44. You may have heard these. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. The parable is interesting in Matthew because it, it's a little bit confusing itself, 
But now with the understanding out of Luke chapter 16, it starts to make a lot more sense, I hope. We're trading one treasure for another. As he understands that the treasure of heaven is like something hidden in a field. Why is it hidden? Because you can't see it right now. As long as we live on this earth right now, waiting for our inheritance, I can't physically touch this future inheritance that God's promised me. It's hidden in a field. It's, it's something I know is there, but I can't bring it out and use it yet. It's waiting for a day to come. Meanwhile, I want to secure that, so I sell all the things I have in this world that are no value anyway so that I have enough money to buy that future treasure that I'm so interested in so that when that future treasure becomes available to me, I'll own it. That's the same principle that Jesus is talking about here in chapter 16 of Luke. Using wealth that you shouldn't care about to obtain the stuff you're supposed to care about. And then he ends with one of the most powerful statements, I believe, one of the most powerful statements on wealth found in the Bible. In chapter 16, verse 13, he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And this verse teaches two very important principles, and I, I believe this is why it's such an important verse overall. First, money is either a tool to please God or it is your God. It is either a tool you use to please God or it is your God. And the test to determine whether you see money as a tool or as a God is this. If you view money as merely a tool, as a means of pleasing God, then what do we learn? You will despise money. You will use it when you need to to accomplish your mission, but you'll have no love for it and you will not relish it. He says you can either hate one and love the other or else be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus puts it in stark terms. There's no in-between. So you're not going to enjoy working with money generally. It's not going to capture your attention. It's not going to excite you. It's a means to an end. It's a tool. You use it when you need it, but you have nothing personally invested in it. On the other hand, You'll know if you're in love with money and not with God because you're focused on money continually. You care about it. You care what it will do for you. You are sad when you don't have it. You're happy because you have it. And you decide what you do day to day because of how it affects your money. You're pretty much driven by that decision. If that's you, then what God says in His Word is there's a pretty good chance that Money is, in fact, your God. Now, of course, as a believer, we can still have a faithful belief in Christ, be saved for that faith, and yet revert back to a lifestyle of sin that gives the impression that God is not our God, but money is. But for the unbelieving world, it is fair enough to say that it is their God. We just shouldn't act like them. And this is a hard lesson today because I don't believe there's ever been an age when the church has ever been so rich in earthly wealth. And I also think it's no coincidence that the world is so uh, that the church rather is so weak, that the church is so fickle, that the church is so complacent, and that the church as Paul said it in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 is so close to the end. He says this in that chapter, he says, "Realize this that in the last days Difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irre irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, 
brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. You know, I couldn't come up with a more accurate list to describe the age we live in and to some extent the church, at least in some parts. And I don't think it's a coincidence that wealth has come along with those changes. I believe that is effectively the God that leads to those kinds of self-centered behaviors. And in the next two verses of chapter 16 of Luke, you're going to see the reasons, I believe, why Jesus chose to teach the disciples on this point. Look what he says in chapter 16, verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Jesus knew that the chief stumbling block of the Pharisees was their love of money and their love of men's approval. But Jesus rightly calls them out for this hypocrisy and their love of money rather than their love of God. And he says those things which are highly esteemed among men, like money, like wealth, like power from the, from the effect of wealth, he says those things are detestable in the sight of God. You can't have it both ways. Now, the challenge when you hear a teaching like this or when you read the scripture is to question how much money should I have? You're probably on the right track, but you're asking the wrong question. The right question is, why did God give me money? However much he gave you. Why did he give? And if the answer to that question is so that I would be happy, wrong answer. It's not that he doesn't care that you would be happy at times, but that's not his chief concern, and that's certainly not the reason why he gave you money, because he would be working against his own purposes in his word if he was to say that giving you money is his means of giving you happiness. Don't you see what the scriptures say? To any extent, if we invest ourselves in money for our happiness, we're running afoul of what scripture says we should do. Are we loving money rather than loving God? So it makes no sense at all to suggest that God would invest us with funds, with money, in order to make us happy. He's actually working counter to his own word, were he to do that. So our happiness must be completely independent of money. It must be there when we're poor, and it must not be enhanced because we're rich. It must come from something else, from the joy of the Lord, principally. And with that will come contentment. And then, with contentment, money is never more than a tool. In fact, you all but despise it because of some of the negatives that come with money. But yet you'll use it for God's glory as he gives us opportunity. If the church lived like that, you'd have poor people, you'd have middle class, and you'd have rich, but you'd have money moving wherever God wanted it to be, and you'd have the church not preoccupied with it and therefore freed up emotionally, spiritually, and otherwise to do whatever God called them to do. Because not only is money a source for sin in itself, but it's also a preoccupation which pulls us out of the world God may want us in for the purpose of ministry. And so at the end of this teaching tonight, we're left with Jesus pointing out to the disciples that one of the chief, if not the chief way by which the Pharisees have fallen, been hypocritical, and become a stumbling block to others is because of their love of money. And the love of money is diametrically opposed to the love of God. It is absolutely impossible to love both. And so for their love of money, they reveal their hate of God. Where we'll go next week as we finish this chapter is into the second major story, one that many call a parable, but one I want to suggest to you when we look at it next week is more than a parable. 
And it touches on what seems to be a disconnected issue, a different issue, but we'll see as we study next week how they are connected, where they all finally come together at the end. And then we'll go into 17 as I described it last week. I want to leave you with this thought. There is no topic in the New Testament, no, no earthly topic, treated with more verses than money. Money is the single most common topic in the New Testament. Why is that? Is it because God wants us to be preoccupied with it? Or is it because he knows we will be preoccupied with it? And if you are one who is blessed with money beyond what it takes for you to do the basic necessities of life, there is no command in Scripture to give it all away. But there sure is a presumption in Scripture that it was given to you for some use beyond your own personal pleasure. So seek out what that might be. And understand if you're using your money wisely on that basis. Father, thank you so much for our time again tonight in Luke and for the opportunity to hear your word spoken and to hear the Holy Spirit teach us all. Father, we thank you first and foremost for the blessings that you have given us in this world, the material comforts that make our life easy in this world. But Father, like every blessing, something given to us for good purpose, we can so easily turn it by our own nature into something that dishonors you, that inflames our pride and our selfish interests, Father, and distracts us from the mission you've given us here on earth as your church. But Father, we have heard your word tonight, and I believe, Father, we do not want to be like so many others in that regard. We would hope, Father, that we would be shrewd, that we would know, Father, that this is a tool you've given us, that there is some ultimate purpose in this world for us to serve in using that tool. Let us understand it, Father. I pray that the Holy Spirit would give us such clear insight about how it is we are to use our wealth, that as we go about, Father, our our lives and our ministry as you provide opportunity, that we would never have a concern, Father, about letting go of that wealth where you tell us to let go, that we would feel no compunction whatsoever, Father, to put it to work, that we would know, as you teach, that it is passing away anyway. It holds no value to us in the long run. And so, Father, we would spend it freely. We would save it carefully. We would... uh, Invest it wisely, but in anything you call us to do, Father, we would use it to your glory, never claiming it as our own, and looking forward at all times, Father, to the wealth that is waiting for us in the heavenly realm. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us that insight. I pray that you would give us the courage to follow it. And if it be your will, Father, I praise you that you brought us here now and would bring us again next week. In Jesus' name, amen.